Great, do take a seat. And if you're a Fusion Age or JF Age, there should be a, a sheet somewhere at the back with some questions on that um, you might find helpful um, as we go through this. Now, as I was uh, reading a bit more about the history that we saw on the Playmobil video this week in preparation for the sermon, it suddenly struck me that we've been missing a trick. We've been missing a, a gap in the market. And what Chessington really needs, what the world really needs, picture this, is Reformation, the musical. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've got everything in-house that we need to do it. We've got, we've got the songwriters, we've got the musicians, we've got actors, we've got our, our resident thespian, David Moss, would play Martin Luther, Daff would play the Pope. <laughs> it, it's perfect. Well, well, it was perfect until I very quickly discovered that uh, someone has beaten us to it. The uh, rather wonderfully named Triumphant Love Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas, uh, have got there first. But if we were to do uh, a musical of the Reformation, I think we'd have to base it on the sound of music. It would be a reworking of the sound of music. And Pope Leo X, who was Pope 500 years ago, would have to take on the role of, of the abbess in The Sound of Music. See, if you, you're familiar with The Sound of Music, then the abbess has a problem with one of her clergy. She has a, a problem with a, a nun called Maria, and it leads to the famous song, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? Well, in our Reformation, the musical, Pope Leo X also has a problem, but his problem isn't with an Austrian nun called Maria. His problem is with a German monk called Martin. Martin Luther, to be precise. So how is he going to solve a problem like Martin? That was what was on Pope Leo X's mind 500 years ago. And at that time, and in fact still today, the Roman Catholic Church believed that when it comes to matters of, of your relationship with God, of how you can be right with him, of how you should live, of right and wrong. In other words, of all the most important matters that we, you and I face in our lives, that there were, there were two great authorities. The first was the Bible, and the second was the, the clergy of the Roman Catholic Church itself. So the, the bishops and the, the theologians and the councils, and, and above all, the Pope himself. Catholics hold is, is Christ's representative here on earth. It was the body of, of their teaching down the centuries that was true and, and infallible and authoritative. However, our friend Martin Luther had a problem with this. You see, popes sometimes taught things that contradicted what previous popes had taught. And the councils of the church would sometimes teach different doctrine to previous councils and to the popes. In other words, it was quite clear to Martin Luther that the pope and the church hierarchy were very definitely not infallible. They got things wrong. And more than that, it was clear to Martin Luther that the pope and the church at that point in time were teaching certain things, particularly about how men and women can be made right with God, that were clearly different to what the Bible was teaching. 
And so Martin Luther began to teach what the Bible said. And he began to publish works that were critical of the Pope and of the Catholic Church. And this, as you might imagine, did not go down too well with the Pope. How was he going to solve a problem like Martin Luther? Well, the Pope did what Popes tended to do, and he threatened to excommunicate Martin Luther. He threatened to chuck him out of the church. And so in, in 1521, Martin Luther found himself hauled up before an assembly in a German town called Worms, where a representative of the church demanded that Luther recant his teachings. He demanded that he'd go back on the words that he'd published to deny that there was any truth to them and to, to reaffirm the teaching of the Catholic Church. And Martin Luther thought for a bit how he was going to respond. And then he said this, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Luther said, no, my conscience is bound to what's written in the Bible, not to the, the Pope or the church councils, because they make mistakes. And his position of looking to, to the Bible alone as the final authority on, on what we believe and how we should live became the cornerstone of the Reformation. And it became one of the five hallmarks of the Reformation that are captured in these five solas that we're looking at over the next few weeks. Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. But I guess the question is, why believe that the Bible has any more right to be the final authority than the traditions of the church or the Pope? Why Sola Scriptura? Well, you see, the Bible tells us about itself that it's no ordinary book. If you open your Bibles again at the passage that Gail read for us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'll see right in the middle of, of that reading in verse 16, we, we read this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. Now that seems like a bit of a weird thing to say, right? I mean, we know that the, the books of the Bible were written by human beings. You only have to turn back to verse 1 of this letter to Timothy and find out it was written by a bloke named Paul. I mean, we know that the Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know the names of some of the people who wrote the books of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And what does he mean that it's God-breathed? Well, a different apostle, the apostle Peter, looking back to, to the, the words that were spoken by the Old Testament prophets and written down in the Bible, he says this in 2 Peter chapter 1. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, the men 
that spoke and wrote these words that we have recorded in the Bible, though they wrote with their own styles, though they wrote with their own personalities, weren't the ultimate origin of those words. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit, such that the words that they wrote are in fact the very words of God. Though they were written by human beings, they are God's words. And because the words of the Bible are God's words, that means that they're real, true truth. That means that they're never mistaken. That means that they're infallible. Because you see, the the words of the Bible aren't just the opinions of human beings trying to fathom out the world from the inside. No, they're, they're revelation from the outside. They're the authoritative words of the sovereign God who created and sustains this world and everything in it. And that's the reason why the Bible, and only the Bible, is the final authority when it comes to faith and life. Now we need to be clear what the, reform, what the reformers weren't saying. The reformers weren't saying that the, the Bible is the only authority See, they recognize that a lot of the, the church's teaching, the, the creeds and the confessions that had come before them, were good and useful. They weren't saying that we should stop listening to, to our pastors and teachers and we should chuck out all our Christian books and just try to work everything out on our own with just our Bible in our hands. But what they were saying is that the final authority is not in those pastors and teachers and creeds and confessions. The Bible is the final authority. And the words of those other lesser authorities are useful only insofar as they accurately convey the teaching of the Bible. Do you see what we have in the Bible is, is an extraordinary gift. It's God's very words. It's his own revelation of himself to us. It's infallible, without error, sufficient that all sufficient for all that we face in our lives. That, that's an amazing gift. As the, the psalmist writes, that's more precious than gold. And therefore, as Luther and the other reformers recognized, it's, the Bible alone is our final authority for faith and life. But we have to recognize that, like in Luther's time, there were other things outside of the Bible that would try to set themselves up as the ultimate authority or that we can be tempted to look to as the final authority rather than the Bible. I guess for most of us here, we won't be struggling with looking to the teaching of the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church as our ultimate authority. But some of you here may be from a Catholic background and that might be an issue for you. However, what I want to focus on briefly this morning are just three things that that in practice can end up taking a a position of authority in our lives. First is culture, uh, second is reason, and third is experience. Culture, reason, experience. See, every, every group of people, every culture has its own set of values. Uh, and those values can exert a very strong force on the people who live within that culture. As we know, it's very difficult to swim against the tide of your own culture. 
And it's fair to say that over the last few decades, the tide of our culture has been turning in an increasingly different direction to the teaching of the Bible. And we see that particularly in the areas of the sanctity of life, of human sexuality and gender. In fact, the values of our culture are not just seen as the authority on how we should live. They're increasingly being imposed in an authoritarian way. You must take this view. Otherwise, you're nothing more than a bigot. And of course, we're not immune to to that pressure. Nobody wants to be seen as a bigot. And what we're seeing in some Christian denominations, both in the UK and abroad, churches, ironically, that had their origins in, in the Reformation, like the Church of Scotland, the Church of England, is the gradual exalting of our culture's values over the authority of God-breathed scripture. But the problem is that, like the, the popes and the councils that Martin Luther spoke about, cultures aren't infallible. The cultures can and do go wrong, sometimes spectacularly so. I mean, you only have to look at the, the history of the last couple of centuries to see how cultures can go very wrong. I mean, in Martin Luther's own homeland of Germany in the 20th century, the, the twisted ideology of a democratically elected party took hold and, and led to the Holocaust. In, in the centuries before that, society thought it was acceptable to trade in human slaves, to view them as subhuman, to ship them around the world like cattle. So if cultures have gone so very wrong in the past and had such astonishing blind spots, why should we believe that ours has everything right? See, culture is fallible because human beings are fallible. So despite the pressure that we feel from the culture around us, and it will be an increasing pressure, we as individual Christians and as a church need to keep standing firm on the only infallible rock that we have. That's the inspired word of God in the Bible. Now those areas like sexuality and gender are areas where we can clearly see the pressure at the moment to compromise with culture. But culture can exert a much more subtle power over us. After all, it's very difficult to to separate yourself from the culture that you grew up in and that you've lived in. The culture is, is it's like a pair of glasses which we have on all the time. And we view everything refracted through the values of our culture. Let me take one example. Individual fulfillment. And the, the underlying assumption of our prosperous Western society is that life is all about finding individual self-fulfillment here and now in this world. Whether that's through uh, material possessions or holidays or hobbies or career or experiences or any combination of those things. And it's very difficult in practice to step outside of our cultural mindset. It's very difficult not to listen to that rather than the Bible. I mean, we can hear the words of the Bible telling us about the, the age that we live in about the priority of the gospel in this present age. And we can hear about the age to come, 
the return of Christ to, to judge the world and an eternal future. We can read about a call to deny ourselves and take up our cross to serve others rather than serving ourselves. And yet, do you find yourself doing this? I do this all the time. You do this kind of internal dismissing thing. You know, steady on. It doesn't really mean that for me. It doesn't mean me missing out on material and personal fulfillment in this life. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Because that's what life's all about, right? My personal happiness. And so the values of our culture lead us to dismiss the word of God. And we bow down to culture as a higher authority than the Bible. And that's just one example. But do you see how how culture can act as a, a competing authority to the Bible? So there's culture. And then secondly, there's reason. I mean, human reason, that collective power of our rational minds has been such a powerful tool for us being able to understand and control the world around us. You only have to pull out your smartphone and connect it to instantly to a web server on the other side of the globe to see that that's true, to see what reason can achieve. And that power of reason that we see in, in science and technology can, can lead us to think that, that our reason alone is, is the highest and the final authority, not just for science and technology, but when it comes to all things. In other words, we can take the position that our thinking, our understanding, is the final authority of truth. That we are the ultimate judges of what's right and true. And we can end up bringing that attitude into the things that we hear and read from the Bible. You know, we can start editing what God tells us in his word according to the way that we think things are or should be. You might know that Thomas Jefferson, the, the third president of the USA, did exactly that. I mean, he literally went through the Bible with, uh, with a razor blade and chopped out all the things that offended his human reason. So he got rid of anything supernatural. He got rid of anything miraculous. He removed anything that talked about Jesus being God. He removed Jesus' resurrection. And then he, he glued what he had left back into a single book. And all that he had left from the 1,200-odd pages of the Bible was 46 pages of Jesus' moral teachings from the Gospels. And we can do something similar too. When it comes to the parts of the Bible that, that challenge our thinking, we can either distort them to fit in with what makes sense to us, or like Thomas Jefferson, we can just dispense with them completely. And we take, take the matter of how we can be right with God. I'm sure there are some here today, and you've heard preached from this pulpit many times the message of the Bible that no one is morally good enough to please God and escape his judgment, that all fall short of God's standards and that the only way to be saved from God's wrath is to repent and put all your trust in the death and resurrection of the saviour that God sent, his own son, Jesus Christ. And yet, because that goes against our mental model of how people, get, how people are made right with God, that we 
earn our way into God's um, good books by our upstanding moral lives. We can just edit out what the Bible says. We can do what Thomas Jefferson did, redact that part of it and just reduce God's word down to a, a set of worthy moral principles. So there are things in the Bible that we struggle to get our heads around. And there are things that are, frankly, deeply challenging. You know, the Bible tells us of a God who is utterly sovereign in, in our salvation, who elects before the world was made who he will graciously save. It tells us of an eternal punishment facing those who reject Christ. And because those things are so challenging to our thinking, we can end up imposing our own reason in preference to the Bible. So we say, as, as I've heard Christians say a number of times before, oh yeah, I hear that, but I think actually God works like this. Oh yeah, I see that in the Bible, but I think actually this is the case. See, we can take our thinking to be the final authority rather than the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to turn off our brains when we come to uh, God's word. In fact, quite the opposite. We need our brains fully engaged when we read God's word because God has communicated to us in human language, using all the, the ways that humans use language, in, in narrative and poetry and letters and prose. So it's certainly not the case that we switch our brains off but it does mean that our thinking is not the ultimate measure of God's word. See, it's God's word that is the ultimate measure of us and our thinking. So first there was culture, second reason, and finally there's experience. I wonder if uh, you've heard friends say something, something along the lines of, I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. Uh, maybe you're, you're here today, and that's, that's exactly how you feel. It's spirituality, yes, I'm into that. But I'm definitely not a fan of organized religion. I think one of the, the hallmarks of the spirituality that, that our society is increasingly seeking after is a desire for, for a personal, uh, an individual, an inner experience of, of the divine. That's an increasing view in Britain today. And I think it's actually one that, as Christians, we can, to some extent, resonate with. I mean, we are wonderfully whole, integrated people. You know, we have bodies, we have minds, we have emotions, we have feelings, we have an inner life. Um, as a body of Christians, we know from the Bible that we have God's spirit living in us. And at times we can have inner experiences that flow out from that. Uh, but a problem can come when we place more value in or more weight on those inner experiences than we do on what God tells us in his word. See, the problem with our inner feelings and experiences is that they're fallible. They're subjective. They're not always reliable guides to what's right or what's true. Sometimes they're wrong. So they always have to be held up and tested in the light of the objective word of the Bible. 
We can have certain emotions or, or feelings or, or we can feel inner promptings, but those inner experiences aren't to be the final authority that we look to. If they're not in line with what's taught in the Bible, then it's those experiences that should be rejected rather than God's word. And we take guidance, for instance. There might be a course of action to just feel so right. And if it feels so right, how can it be wrong? Or you might feel that God is guiding you to do something, that he's, he's laid it on your heart as his special will for you. But if it doesn't fit with the teaching of God's word, and you choose to listen to those inner experiences rather than God's word, then actually what we're doing is placing the authority of your inner experiences over that of the Bible. We can even take our, our feelings and our experiences to be more authoritative about where we stand with God than his word. We, we can think, well, you know, when the band is playing and we're singing together and worshipping God together, I just feel such joy. It's just such a moving experience for me. I know God must be pleased with me. I must be one of his. But your own experiences, important though they are, are not the authority on where you stand with God. Now that's found in, in what the Bible tells us. It's whether you've turned from going your own way and put all your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And on the other side of the coin, we can, we can infer from our experiences or our lack of them that we're not really saved or forgiven. We can start to question whether God really does love us. You might be here this morning, and though you're trusting in Christ, I know you're seeking to, to walk faithfully with him, you just don't feel the joy of your salvation. You just feel dry. And you don't feel, feel that inner peace. And when you pray, it's, it feels like God's not there. It feels like he's, he's not listening. Uh, maybe despite trusting in the gospel of forgiveness, you're struggling still with the guilt of the things that you've done in the past. You're not feeling that forgiveness. And these, these inner experiences or lack of them can lead us to question whether we are in fact part of God's kingdom. But wonderfully, your inner experiences are not the final authority on your standing with God. I want you to listen this morning to the authoritative word of God. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That is the authoritative word of the Bible. Take God at his word this morning, despite what you feel inwardly. By God's grace, I pray that you will come to know and experience that an inward sense of joy and peace and of your eternal security with him. But it's not the presence or absence of those feelings that is authoritative 
It's God's unchanging word that we have in the Bible. So culture, reason, experience. They're just three things that we can set as a higher authority than the Bible in our lives. But let me close by saying one more thing. If the Bible is God's authoritative word, if it's his gracious revelation of himself to us, if it is his priceless gift to us that's sufficient for for our lives and our faith, and it is, then there's really only one right response as his people. It's to take it seriously. You see, words are never separate from their speaker. How you treat someone's words is how you treat them. I mean, if, if I leave an answer phone message on Josh's phone asking him to do something for me, and he listens to it and just goes, yeah, I'm not going to do that. He's not just rejecting my words as something that exists separately from me. No, in rejecting my words, he's also rejecting me. How he treats my words is how he's treating me. And it's the same with God's word that we have in the Bible. How we treat God's word is how we treat God himself. You want to know how you've treated God this last week? It's pretty simple. It's how you treated his word. Did you pay attention to it when it was preached on Sunday? Did you give it any attention in your own time during the week? Did you engage with it wholeheartedly in, in your life group or in hub? Were you bringing it again, back again again into your mind, chewing it over, seeking to let it shape you? Did you live in line with what you know that it teaches? Or did you ignore it and do the opposite? Look, there's a, we've got a number of ways in this church that you can engage with the Bible. So make the most of them. There's a great opportunity tonight. Dan's going to be preaching God's word from Mark's gospel. Why not come back and hear that? Why not read the passage that he's going to be preaching from before you come along so that you're ready to engage with it? Why not pray beforehand that God will help you to listen well and to hear his voice speaking? And why not join a life group if you're not part of a life group already why not commit to engaging with God's word every week in a life group or in hub and I know it can be a struggle for some of us to to read and understand the bible I know it's hard work and it takes time so why not pick up a copy of this book from the back this book is I'm sure is going to be you'll find it really helpful in getting to know God's word, in coming to understand it, in being able to read it. So why not pick up a copy from the back before you leave? Well, if the band come up, let's um, sing 10,000 Reasons.